Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. In our last episode, we looked at several passages of Scripture that Mormon missionaries oftentimes use as proof texts to support their claims and beliefs. However, in looking at each verse, it was shown that the LDS Church has relied on inaccurate ways of interpreting the Bible. Throughout the years, they have trained up their missionaries and taught their members to incorrectly interpret the Scripture. We saw evidence of this with each verse that was discussed. The context of each verse clearly showed that Mormon teachings were blatantly wrong. In fact, we even saw in one example that in order to force his interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40-50, to 50, Joseph Smith even created the word telestial. As I pointed out in our last episode, the word telestial does not exist in any ancient language. In fact, I read to you from a section of the LDS website that was talking about Joseph Smith's inspired version of the Bible, in which I showed you that he changed passages because those passages didn't say what he wanted them to say. It was clear from what was discussed that this is an obvious example of a wrong translation by Joseph Smith. This means that the view of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40, still held by the LDS Church today, is blatantly false. The last passage of Scripture that we looked at was Psalm 82, verse 6, which, as I mentioned, is a passage that Mormon missionaries use as a proof text for their belief that humans can become a god. By looking at the surrounding verses in the context of these verses, we saw that Psalm 82.6 is not saying that humans can become gods. However, as I concluded the episode, I asked the question, are there many gods? I also asked if it's possible for humans to become a god. In this episode, as we conclude our study of Mormonism, I want us to look at what the Bible teaches regarding this subject. So, are there many gods? And, is it possible for you or I to become a god? Well, I now want us to look at what the Bible tells us regarding these types of claims. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, God tells us through Isaiah the prophet that before me there was no god formed, and there will be none after me. Elsewhere in Isaiah, God tells us in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, that I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In fact, God makes it clear throughout Isaiah chapter 45 that there are no other gods. You see this in verse 5, which I just read. We also see it in verse 6, verse 14, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 22. In fact, in verse 22, God repeats this fact twice, in one verse. Before I read what God says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, let me read what He says in verse 21. It says, Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. 
who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. So here in this verse, God is explaining that people are worshiping false gods and that they are worthless. In response to this, listen to what God says in verse 21. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, God says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. So here in this verse, not only does God explain that there is no other God besides Him, He repeats Himself at the end of the verse and describes the kind of God that He is. For example, He says at the end of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, that He is a righteous God. Not only is He a righteous God, but He also explains that He is a Savior and that there is none except Him. There is no other God and no other Savior except Him. So not only is this a clear verse that there are no other gods, but it's also a wonderful verse pointing to the deity of Christ and the fact that He is our only Savior. Instead of pouring out His wrath on those who are worshiping idols, God showed mercy. Listen to what He said in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. The fact that there are no other gods but the God of the Bible is made clear in these passages. It's also made clear elsewhere in Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, we read, There is no God besides you. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, that there is no God but one. John records the words of Jesus rebuking his audience in John chapter 5, verse 44. He's rebuking them for receiving glory from one another instead of seeking the glory that is from the one and only God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the last verse I want to share comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, known as the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Mormons make the claim that man can become God, and that therefore there are millions of gods. But from each of these verses... It's extremely clear that the Bible teaches that there is only one God. Not only that, but the Bible makes it clear that there were no gods before God, nor will there be any gods after God. We saw in previous episodes that the Mormon church teaches that God was once a man as we are and just evolved into his current state and that we also can and will evolve into Godhood. So what does the Bible teach us about God evolving? In Psalm chapter 90 verse 2, it tells us that before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
In other words, this verse is telling us that God had no beginning and he has no end. We see this fact repeated throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 93 verse 2, it says that your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 27, Moses wrote about God and listen to what he said. He said, the eternal God is a dwelling place. If you're still not sure about this, listen to what God says in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, where he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. James, the brother of Jesus, makes the same declaration about God in James chapter 1 verse 17, where he writes at the end of verse 17 that God does not change like shifting shadows. It's clear from each of these passages that God did not evolve. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. So then, what's the origin of this belief that God evolved, or that man can become a God? We see this kind of false theology being presented by Satan in the Garden of Eden. For example, Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 tells us that the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only does Satan lie to Adam and Eve and tell them that they can become like God, Scripture also tells us that Satan wanted to be like God. For example, in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, we read the following. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Jesus alludes to this verse in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he tells the 72 messengers that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The book of Revelation also makes reference to Satan falling from heaven. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan wanted to be like God, which led to his great fall from heaven. He then introduced this lie to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we see the same lie being taught within the Mormon church, that man can become like God, or that man can become a God. So let me bring us back to the topic of whether or not God evolved from a man to become a God, and whether or not people can evolve into a God. We've seen in this lesson that Mormon theology is wrong. God did not evolve into Godhood. He has always been God, and He will always be God. There is no other God, and there will never be any other God besides Him. 
Man cannot evolve into godhood, nor can man earn his or her own salvation. I now want to point out to you a few interesting facts about the Mormon tabernacle. If you've ever looked closely at a Mormon temple or tabernacle, you will notice that there are no crosses. Crosses are considered offensive to Mormons. On the LDS website, on a section dealing with the cross, they write that because the Savior lives, we do not use the symbol of his death as a symbol for our faith. Honestly, I have no problem with this statement. I've known of many Christians that don't wear crosses for the same view. I have no problem with accepting this answer. This, to me, is similar to a Christian explaining the difference between a Protestant cross that does not have Jesus on it and the Catholic cross that contains Jesus on it. I don't have any problem with this. However, what I find interesting is that instead of a cross or an image of Jesus on their temple, they have as the focal point the angel Moroni. If the cross of Christ is offensive, couldn't you still place Jesus as the focal point of your temple? This is where strong objections should be made. Why is the angel Moroni the focal point and not Jesus? Sadly, not only is the angel Moroni the most prominent and noticeable part of each temple, but he is the reason why Joseph Smith received the Book of Mormon and why the Mormon church exists. So this should cause us to ask, why does this angel play such an important role in the LDS church? Does it really matter? Does it matter that the angel Moroni is the prominent piece on the Mormon tabernacle and not Jesus? Am I just overreacting and making something out of nothing as a way to attack the Mormon church? To answer this question, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He warns his readers in this verse that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In his letter to the Galatians, listen to Paul's warning to them. He wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Whether you're a Mormon friend listening to this episode, a Christian, or someone who has not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, think about these two verses that I just read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and from Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. It's obvious that these verses are clearly warning that the being that presented himself to Joseph Smith as the angel Moroni was not from God. The angel Moroni gave Joseph Smith a different gospel. Scripture tells us that Joseph Smith should have ignored Satan, who was disguised as an angel of light. But Joseph didn't ignore him. And as a result, the LDS Church exists today. So let me bring everything together. Throughout this series on Mormonism, we have learned that Joseph Smith, as a young boy, was deceived by Satan or by a demon. He received a gospel that was contrary to the one that was preached by the apostles and received by the early church. Sadly, we've seen through these many episodes that Mormons are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. Mormons 
are members of a religious cult, and they worship a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. We saw this in a previous episode, that Mormons do not worship the Jesus of the Bible. Now, I will note that each of the Mormons that I have personally interacted with have been loving, kind, and sincere people. But even though they talk about Jesus and the Bible, they are not Christians. As I've already pointed out, the Jesus that they are talking about is not the Jesus that saves. It's a different Jesus altogether. It's the brother of Satan, according to the LDS Church. Sadly, Mormons are being deceived by Satan. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15 warns us that Satan's servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. So what does this mean to us? Well, we need to know what the Bible says so that we can share the truth of the Scripture with them. We need to obey God's command in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We also need to remember that people come to faith by hearing Scripture. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And lastly, we need to be in prayer for them, remembering what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only that, but we need to realize that for someone to walk away from the Mormon church, it often means that they are having to give up family and friends and loved ones. Ask yourself if this would be something that would be an easy thing for you to do. The answer is no. So with that understanding, Be in prayer and let Christ shine through you to the Mormons that you come in contact with. The best way to minister to Mormons is to know your Bible and to love on them. Be willing to talk to them about their faith. Ask them questions. You don't need to know everything about Mormonism in order to talk to Mormons. When you're talking to them, If they say something that you don't understand or that you've never heard of before, ask them to clarify or ask them, what do you mean by that? Let them define their own terms. There are also a lot of great apologetics resources that you can read or watch. I have several resources on my website, brianoconnell.org. If you're a Mormon who has been listening to these podcasts, my prayer for you is that you will take the information that I have presented and look into it yourself. I will be praying for you because I know how unsettling it is to be told that everything you believe in is false. If you notice, most of the information that I've addressed throughout this series came directly from Mormon sources that I've acquired over the years, as well as from the LDS website. Please look into each of the things that I've mentioned. I've also listed each of the sources that I've cited on my website so that you can look into them yourself. If you have any questions, I would encourage you to talk to the person that shared this podcast with you. 
Ask them your questions. But most importantly, read your Bible. Not the Book of Mormon and each of the other Mormon resources, but read your Bible and pray. If you want to know why you can trust the Bible, please listen to my other episodes on the reliability of Scripture. My prayer is that this series on Mormonism has been encouraging and challenging. Most of all, my prayer is that this series will draw each of you closer to our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me close out this episode with this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Over the past 10 episodes, I've been addressing the topic of Mormonism and showing that the LDS Church is not a Christian church and that Mormons are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. I now want to shift our focus to another topic that many Christians have questions about, and that is the problem of evil. Have you ever had questions about the presence of evil in the world? If God is real, then why does evil exist? What about the doctrine of hell? Have you ever asked the question, how could a loving God send somebody to an eternal hell? Or, have you ever read through parts of the Old Testament and struggled with the genocide that God commands? Over the next several episodes, I will be covering these and other topics regarding the problem of evil. So, if you or anyone you know has ever had these kinds of questions, come back next time as I provide answers to these difficult questions. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as I address another issue that confronts Christianity. God bless.